The moment you realized you were a gay man, you were forced onto the path of the other. So you know oppression, inside and out. The calling of otherness has led you on your own hero's journey. And that journey has prepared you for greatness. You are a man answering the call to brotherhood, to conscious sex, and to heart-centered connection. Welcome home, brother. This is the Girly Men Podcast. My name is Mike Gurley, and I'm the host and founder of GurlyMen.com, a site for gay men and anyone self-identified as the other, designed to help you invest in your own dignity, strengthen your connection to your chosen families, and thrive in general society. Now that you found us, please hit that subscribe button. Today's guest is West Hollywood Mayor John D'Amico. For more than 20 years, Mayor D'Amico has participated in city leadership, and now he's the mayor. Before that, he worked at uh, the County of Los Angeles, Department of Health Services, which um, is very relevant to this pandemic-rich episode. And he also worked for AIDS Project Los Angeles. I worked for the city as well for 23 years and recently retired, and I met then council member D'Amico when I was working in the city manager's office and he let me run with the idea of a gay men's discussion group called Tribe. We talk about what we talked about in Tribe, which was the transition from an AIDS-centric sexual community to a healthy sexual life community. We talk about comparing AIDS to COVID-19, his experience coping with the symptoms of COVID-19, which he recently recovered from. We talk about finding humor during an epidemic and the positive social outcomes that followed the era of AIDS. John's coming out story may not be the hero's journey that I've been talking about. We talk about why he moved to West Hollywood. And finally, we talk about advice he has for men who still want to hook up. So stick with us. And here's John D'Amico. And we're on now with Mayor John D'Amico of the city of West Hollywood. Uh, welcome to the Girly Man podcast, John. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me. Um, I would have you here, um, but we do have the whole uh, COVID coronavirus thing happening. So um, we'll just deal with doing this on Zoom. John, you have a really long career of being of public service and of being very public uh, as for being on the city council and all of that. And one of my deepest connections with you is through the, the tribe discussion group when I just mentioned it to you and you're like, let's go. And we had a gay men's discussion group for five or seven years. And that, that's been really great. And um, as a gay man um, and for all the men who kept showing up, I just do really want to thank you for that on top of all the other stuff that you do for generally for the city. But for that well, specific you, sliver, I want to just say thank you. You're, you're welcome. And, you know, I, in hindsight, it's, it's pretty clear, Mike, that you and, you know, the, the sort of genesis behind that was really kind of a transition point from the time of AIDS to the time without AIDS, in a way. Hmm. You know, I think when that started, we... I don't want to speak for all gay men. I couldn't possibly, but certainly a lot of us in West Hollywood were still living in a world in which there weren't a lot of options, right? You could practice safe sex or you could be a bad person. You could be (laughs) HIV positive or you could be HIV negative. And there was sort of 
there wasn't a lot of overlap. And now in the era, in the time of prep, in the time of sort of gay men and lesbians and trans people and everyone sort of participating in a global community of healthy sexual discussions and sex lives, that exists. And that gay men's discussion group in some way bridged that I think for me, I went to several discussions about prep there. I went to several discussions about sort of having sex the way you want to have it. I went to several discussions there about people's fears of the world changing again when they had spent maybe their entire lives from the time they were 12 until they were, you know, uh, 45, only thinking about gay sex as being in one particular way and now suddenly it was 2013 or 14 and they were supposed to give it up and be fine with it and figure it out and so I think all of those things like were you know one month at a time were talked about and maybe it didn't reach you know a global audience but it reached a community of men in West Hollywood that uh, as we know Many times West Hollywood invents what happens in the rest of the country. And I think we did that again in that little way, you know, the, the ways in which we caused experts to show up. Uh, the owner of Grinder came, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Tony Mills came, uh, people from um, LA County Health came. I mean, we really sort of had those discussions and I give that to you. I know that that was, Maybe not what you thought about when you thought about it in the first moment, but it's what it developed into uh, you and Brendan and others who led those discussions. And I think it's a really, it's a really honorable, admirable thing that happened. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And um, thank you for supporting it. Talking about that, you know, this, this whole podcast is taking on a very different tone now that there's the pandemic, because I... I think as just data, uh, a fact, that the only thing that all gay men on the planet have in common is, this, is the desire to have sex with other men. Once we leave that, we're different, we're different politically, we're different racially, we're different economically, we're different culturally, and I think that's off the table now. So you're, you've been talking about transitional sexual identities um, or how we approach our sexuality as gay men, not our sexual identity, but how we approach sexuality. And it seems like we're facing that again now. It, it looks like, I mean, you were really in the trenches. I, um, before this interview, I didn't actually do my research before. I didn't know that you were the co-director of public policy at AIDS Project Los Angeles. I was for a couple of years uh, after Phil Wilson left. Can you talk about um, comparing the AIDS plague and the coronavirus COVID-19 epidemic? You know, what's similar, what's different? Well, you know, I have heard a lot of uh, mostly gay men jump to a sort of starting off point that uh, we, we have familiarity with this. We know what it's like because we know about the time of AIDS. And I certainly don't want to disabuse people of what they know or, you know, what they, what they think they know. But I would say that to, to me, AIDS happened in slow motion. I mean, it took years for people often to find the courage to get themselves tested, uh, years often for them to get sick even the first time, years for uh, medications to develop. 
and in fact, you know, what we know happened is that, yes, it took uh, 15 years from 81 to 96 to get a three-drug cocktail, but we were able to catch up with hundreds of thousands of men and women uh, who were HIV positive and give them those drugs and save their lives. If it takes two years to catch up to this COVID virus, hundreds of millions of people will have already been infected and been through their disease progression and come out the other side, many of whom will die, many millions perhaps. So I think, you know, this is not happening in slow motion. This is happening in hyperspeed. And sure, many of the lessons I learned about being HIV positive, about working with people who are HIV positive, when I found out that I had been exposed to this virus, I put those into use immediately. You know, I said, here's a list of all the people that I may have been, uh, that I've been around that I may have exposed. And I wrote them all an email or I wrote to my HR person and said, you need to write them an email, you know, and I, and I immediately thought about ways to protect people that I love, Keith, others to make sure that if something happened before I found out, nothing was gonna happen going forward. And I also wanna say that the other thing about this virus is that when people like me in the 1980s found out they were HIV positive, there were not a lot of words of um, wisdom that were actual wisdom. You know, there was lots <laughs> of people who said, you know, things will work out, it'll be fine, but ultimately <laughs> most of us knew things were not working out and we're not going to be fine. Some of us, they were. I, you know, incredibly grateful and could not tell you why I'm still alive from having been exposed to HIV and furthermore, couldn't tell you why I'm still alive from having been exposed to COVID-19. You know, that's, that's my body, it's working in its own way. But I just think that the vast majority of people who get infected by this uh, COVID-19 virus will have an experience of their health and declining and then improving and they will move on. And our sort of global response to this, I think, is incredible and it's heartening and it's admirable. And though many of us might not like the leadership at some levels, even at my level, I get plenty of emails about, you know, how I'm doing it wrong at City Hall. But I think generally, the fact that this is happening in hyperspeed uh, and that we're reacting the way we are and taking care of communities and people the way we are, to me is kind of extraordinarily, extraordinary and impressive. And I guess the last thing I would say is that with whatever deliberate speed a vaccine or a set of sort of protocols for helping people who do get infected with this virus, I would expect, uh, similar to other diseases and maybe specifically HIV and AIDS, our community, the city of West Hollywood, the gay community, uh, will be able to roll that out because we know how to do that. We know how to tell people, if you take this medication, you won't get infected. If you are infected and you take this medication, it will keep you alive. There's no shame in, in living your life and having your healthcare be some of the things you, that you talk about with other people. And I just think that in some way, that's a lesson that we have learned. That's, a, that's something we can teach other communities and reteach ourselves once that arrives. Well, I do want to compliment the leadership I've seen from West Hollywood. I'm <laughs> a block and a half out of the out of the, over the border now, um, but I have been looking to 
just the clear, open, um, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, and just super easy access, weho.org slash coronavirus. I'm just very impressed and happy to have been associated with the city when I see that, uh, especially with all the chaos. It's, it's very comforting to, to see that. Well, I, I, you know, one goal of mine, Mike, has been to, to not be the guy with all the answers, you know, because <laughs> I'm not. And what I want to be is the person who gives ex exactly the same message that our city needs to give every time and it develops as our city's message develops and we do everything we can, but we don't promise things and we don't do things that we don't know how to do. You know, I mean, the city of West Hollywood is not a healthcare provider. The county is a provider of public health and a provider of uh, healthcare generally. And so we look to them to tell us what to do. There are plenty of people who want us to be you know, opening up testing sites and shutting down uh, this store or, or, or this restaurant that's delivering or that pot store that's selling cannabis or, or that dog park itself because, you know, three people are standing too close to each other. But ultimately, I just think we need to be delivering the message that tells uh, exactly what we know at this moment and be willing yep. to, you know, have that evolve and then tell that message. And, um, you know, I won't be the mayor forever. I think I'll be done in, you know, two months or so. And uh, then there'll be a new mayor. And my hope is that Lindsay will do the same, that she will know that the best option is to tell the city's story, not to be the mayor who's in charge. Uh, because I just don't think uh, our city, you know, I don't think our city is best served by that kind of decision-making. but you know, we'll, we'll find out. In this time of, of, of confusion and chaos, it, it is really great just to have that, that clarity, a, a place where I just like, oh, this is, this is what they know and this is what they don't know and these are my responsibilities for myself. Thank you for that information um, as mayor. Now, as my neighbor, and we're very similar demographically, as far as like age, I'm positive. Um, when I saw that you were positive with uh, COVID, uh, 19, I was like, oh my God, um, this is really hitting really, really close to home. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to tell a little bit that about your, that story, especially when it comes to maybe not just the ill, well, there's the illness itself and, and the symptoms, but also the, the isolation and how you handled that with your husband, with Keith and, and your friends and, and how did you balance support and isolation and all that and um, emotionally maybe how was it for you well I guess I really want to start with I'm not a medical professional yes <laughs> I need to be like super clear and you know I uh, Saturday 14th I started to have a headache there was a lot going on at City Hall about emergency ordinances and shutting businesses and lots of phone calls and emails and you know angry people and desires of you need to shut it down and you need to leave it open and you're trying to put me out of business and you know like why are you don't you care about residents and all that stuff which is perfectly fine and I got a headache and I was like that's awful and so I went to sleep and I woke up and then my neck hurt and I couldn't really move my head and my and I was like boy this is this stress sucks and then I <laughs> I thought like on Sunday afternoon I actually thought like Wait a second, John, you're 56 years old and you have never had a stress headache or this. Maybe something else is up, you know? And then I was like, 
what could I have? You know, I'm like trying to diagnose myself. And then um, Monday I woke up and I was coughing. And so I didn't go to work because at my job, you know, we're all like, everybody just, if you're not well, stay home, right? Even if you have a cold. And then by the middle of the day, I started getting a fever. So I called the city manager and said, I'm not going to come to our city council meeting. And then my fever didn't go away. And then Tuesday morning, I woke up. And, and honestly, I mean, it was certainly in the back of my head that maybe that was what was up, but not really. I mean, I literally, I could show you the text I sent to my doctor. It was like, I've had a headache and a little fever, and I don't want to come in because I'm sure you're busy. But if, you know, my assumption is I should just drink fluids and rest. And then he called me and said, no, you need to drive over here and park in the parking lot and leave your lights on and we're going to test you for this virus. Okay. So then I did and I still had a fever and I had a fever overnight and it got, it wasn't great. It got to like 102. And then I was sort of thinking, okay, this is an intense sort of moment, right? Uh, but then I woke up the next day, I, I took some NyQuil and some Tamiflu and I woke up the next day and my fever was gone. And then my doctor called and told me the results. But by that point, my fever never came back, you know, and he was like, well, you have to wait until the seventh or eighth day. Sometimes it comes back, sometimes, you know, and that was over the weekend. And, but the whole time I was texting him a couple of times a day or talking to his nurse practitioner and they were very concerned. They were really clear that the threshold for going to the hospital was, you know, if I have any trouble breathing at all, I need to call them and tell them and tell them that I had tested positive so they could be prepared for me to arrive and all that. And so I never had a moment where I was like feeling super sick and knew I was positive for this virus. I had sort of already gotten over it. It was like, wow, what just hit me? You know, like whatever that is, it just whacked <laughs> uh -huh. me in the head. It's back there, you know, and I'm still moving. So Keith started to not feel well, you know, the next week and he was not well for four or five days. And that was, then I was sort of looking in and that's when I kind of got scared. Like, wow, this could really just go bad. He could just, you know, be laying yeah. in bed and then just get worse and worse. And luckily that never happened either. It got better and now, you know, he's been feeling well for four days and I've been feeling well for 10 days and 11 days actually. And so, you know, it's kind of in that sort of spirit that all of this went down. Um, in fact, today I went back to my doctor's office to participate in a study that he's doing for viral uh, virology study in the blood and in the mucous membrane for people who have already finished their course of infection. So I was the first patient in his practice of several thousand gay men to have tested positive. And I didn't love hearing that when he told me, you know, we have been, I've been seeing him since 1994 and I was like, I don't know, Peter, if I really want to be like the pioneer again, you know. Yeah, <laughs> we've done that. <laughs> Exactly. Like, really? But, you know, but then I also, here it is less than two weeks later, and I'm, you know, participating in a study and trying to make sure that other people have as much information as can be developed from, you know, people who fortunately like me mm -hmm. made it through that. Well, then let's talk about um, the isolation and the socialization, mental, emotional aspects of that. Um, I think you, it sounds like you had the earlier restrictions personally than everybody's living under now. 
Um, yeah. I mean, do you I, have any 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 wisdom you've learned from that? <laughs> um, well, or just spend, to stare a story of like what we might expect if we're if we're like you, <laughs> <laughs> which I kind of am. I did so. spend you know two. 15 days in my house, in, on my property. And I um, sort of jokingly, <laughs> but truly would walk a couple of miles every day up and down my driveway. Just because I, you know, I, here's what I know about everyone I know who's ever been to the hospital. They stand you up and they walk you down the corridor, right? You know, you had your hip redone three hours ago, get up and start walking. Your lungs been replaced, get up and start walking, you know? And so based on nothing except the fact that I wanted to be outside and when it wasn't raining and it was sunny, I just, you know, walked out my side door and walked up and down my driveway. And I literally would walk, you know, two and a half, two and three quarters, one and three quarters miles up and down my driveway. Sometimes, Were you listening to podcasts or no, music? Sometimes or in a meditative state. Like a meditative thing? Meditative okay, great. And, you know, those monks who sort of walk that same yeah. path. Well, I say that because I think that this may be a, an opportunity. You know, I started teaching yoga and I meditate every day and a forced opportunity for people to be with themselves. Right. And um, right. Um, so it, it is interesting that you were doing that uh, without anything in your ears. And, and I'd also say, Mike, that, you know, I love being on the city council. I am honored to be the mayor. But this year, I've been saying to Keith, like, I just really need to slow down. You know, like having a full-time job and being the mayor and being on the council and having a husband. And, and I certainly a lot. didn't wish a global pandemic on the world so that I could slow down. But <laughs> it, it is, I am in a similar way to the way that finding out I was HIV positive catapulted me into my life. It made me sort of snap out of being a knucklehead and get it together and go be myself. This was like, kind of the opposite and inverse reaction of like, yes, I'm at home now. I can, without any qualm, sit down and meditate for an hour. I don't have anywhere else to be because I have nowhere else to go, right? In this sort yeah. of kind of way. And so I really have taken this up as a genuine opportunity to do that thing that I, you know, said I needed to somehow figure out how to do it, just got figured out for me or the space opened up and I filled it with that as opposed to filling it with anxiety or, you know, some other. Yeah. It sounds like you um, almost happily surrendered to it. I just, Oh, I completely surrendered to it. You know, I mean, it's true. I'm happy to walk my dog around the block, but even since, you know, after being cleared by the County and cleared by my doctor, I have walked my dog around the same block four times you know, and driven to my doctor's office. I mean, there's nowhere to go. And I'm right yeah. here. I don't have to, I have surrendered to it. And I do really see it as a, as an opportunity. I, I see it that way too. It's, it's really difficult, um, but it is an opportunity to go inside. And I'm, my personal belief system right now is that's just, that's where the answers are. That's where the, the eternal wisdom lives. That's where the soul the atman the buddha energy whatever you you know whatever people want to call it it's it's really it's in there it's not out there it's not in um it's not at the mall um <laughs> it's not on instagram it's not on instagram <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> or those other places so uh right 
it, it, it's a chance for that. So you did mention there a second ago about uh, AIDS or HIV said you that catapulted you into your life. So what was happening before? Can, can you talk about like maybe before and yeah. then I mean, the I, switch and then I what was, happened? It was uh, 1988. I was working in a gallery, sort of sleeping on people's sofas, hanging out at bars at night, driving a motorcycle around, you know, like being a 24 year old in 1988 which you know I mean I it would we could spend the rest of eternity describing what it was like and not cover it but you know like 1988 was a different time in West Hollywood and uh, I was enjoying it in the way that I somehow knew how but I also you know once I found out I was HIV positive I also had lots of friends who were and acquaintances and you know some of them bought insurance policies and cashed them out expecting to die. Like this sort of thing that I don't even know people can even conceptualize now, right? Like, you know, they bought like three quarters of a million dollars of insurance and then, you know, said, oh, I'm HIV positive and sold it for half a million dollars and then just went, you know, wild. And then others sort of went into the sort of meditative Buddha, you know, Los Los Angeles angels, you know, like that whole thing. And, um, and I just sort of thought, I think I need the environment of, of an educational institution, which would come with some structure and come with some insurance, which I didn't have insurance. Why would I have insurance? I was 24, you know, and uh, uh, how did you get how did you find out? Was it was it your first test? Or was it? Yeah, it was my first one. I, I I was the same way, and nobody laughs at my joke when they said, "You want the t- you wanted you want an HIV test?" And I said, "No, I passed it the first time." So thank you for laughing at that. <laughs> no one has ever laughed at that, especially a healthcare worker. <laughs> they they don't think that's funny. <laughs> I I think that's hilarious. You know, I mean, sure, there is a lot of dark humor too in 1988. You know. Oh yeah. Yes. I mean, yes. A lot of very. So so yeah. So I just, you know, and I had spent a couple of years before that, like trying to get into graduate school and, you know, make like not getting in and then changing my mind and going for a day. And, and then I just said, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to find a school and get myself in and start. And wherever my life takes me, it's not going to be riding a motorcycle around at 2.30 in the morning you know, following some guy, <laughs> some guy home just because I don't have anywhere to be the next morning. Did you think that you were going to die from it? I never did. And I still don't. And I saw plenty of people die. Plenty of people kill themselves. Plenty of people not die, but also not live their potential lives. And plenty of people who just rose and became, you know, super exciting and excited about living and are still alive and and doing it. And I, I don't judge any of those outcomes including my own, you know, because mm-hmm. I think possible to look at me and see what a lunatic sort of type A personality I am who maybe didn't stop to smell the roses enough, right? But I think everyone's journey in their life is their journey. And yeah. The, the layer of HIV has complicated it for some and changed it for the better for others, I think. Do you think, well, I was just going to say, do you think your life would be different if you weren't positive? But I'd, I'd say, how do you think your life would be different if you didn't test positive at 24 years old? 
it's impossible to know. I mean, I, sorry, Michael, I, it's just impossible <laughs> to know, like, because uh, I, maybe I would have tested positive at 25. Well, that's why I love this podcast. I get to just yeah. ask impossible questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, so, yeah. If AIDS itself didn't exist, then perhaps there is mm. a different world out there. But just because I didn't have HIV, wouldn't you? Oh, that? okay. Well, let's talk about that. What, where do you think gay people would be if AIDS hadn't happened? Well, again, I think, you know, uh, one of the... Or maybe I can make it even more fine-tuned a question. Do you think we would have advanced as far uh, as far as with um, uh, uh, civil rights and all of that? If no. Wasn't for One of the mind-blowing things about AIDS is that it outed so many people. Not the celebrities, but sure, plenty of celebrities, whatever. But it outed people in their, you know, three-bedroom ranch homes and their two-room apartments all across the US. And w one of the things I think about a lot, and I wish I could, I wish somebody better than a better thinker than me about this and a better writer than me about this would write about is those people who threw their children away when they found out they had AIDS, how they lived the rest of their lives. Because the world moved on and the world found a way to incorporate, you know, AIDS and HIV into sort of who we are as human beings. And I just wonder. I just wonder about those people. You know, I knew some of them, the parents of some of my friends and, I, and the brothers and sisters of some of my friends. And I think, you know, it happens today. Sure, plenty of gay people are thrown away by their parents. But I just think it's, a, it's an interesting story. And I think, I, I don't think we would have advanced as far as we have without AIDS humanizing gay people uh, in, a really, in a really beautiful, I think, and... Uh, substantial way. Now we have mythologized our own sort of, you know, story about what we did for ourselves and each other. And, and that's fine. You know, myth is an incredibly powerful, you know, it's an incredibly powerful thing. But I think that the real heart and soul of all of that is the kind of heart wrenching, heartbreaking moments that happened in living rooms and dining rooms and telephone calls that really changed America. Yeah, well, I look around now and see um, with that experience, wondering what will be mythologized about what I'm watching right now, and the the horrors and the the courage and the suffering that I get to say this. You know, I you know I became a, and I found out I was, I was positive in '87, so that's the reason I can be heartless. I already heard a frontline worker talking about how difficult it was in ICU where she's working and she can't remember the last time she slept but then when she got sent home to rest all she wants to do is go back to work and be with in the fight there is that and I think about all the movies that were made about World War II <laughs> musicals and everything right. you know and that was a horrible horrible terrible thing um, as far as I know um, getting shot and blowing destroying cities and stuff is not nice and then we wrote musicals about those things and everything. What I see is people being able to have purpose. And I think if people at home can be leveraged or make what they're doing have that purpose, be attached to that purpose, then they're more likely to 
um, follow the protocols of stay at home and um, find meaning in the chaos. And later it will be mythologized as how we all worked together and everything was clear or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, we don't know the myth. It's probably too early, but um, you know, certainly some have written about the plagues of the Oedipus cycle, right? And how the Greeks and how really humanity has always understood plague. And, um, you know, we have for a hundred years, uh, give or take, especially if you take away the reality of gay men, uh, we haven't had a plague, you know, as a society. So I think in some way we understand the seriousness of it and maybe there's some, some sense memory of it, but it is different. You know, in fact, you and I are having a conversation and seeing each other's face, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, so the isolation is, there's some simultaneity to the isolation of, you have communication through a screen, but we've all been telling each other for the last 10 years, you know, this thing in your hand is the worst thing ever, and now it's the best thing ever. Yeah. Right? Yes. <laughs> so yes. It's uh, interesting how that, you know, that's, that's flipped. And certainly there will be plenty of art made about this time, about isolation and connection. There will be, you know, plenty of books written about it, I would imagine. Plenty of, you know, ABC News, World News Tonight, two minutes of feeling good about this person who got to say goodbye to his mom or this person who, you know, saved a two-year-old or yeah. all those things. And, but I think that's, that, that's just a sort of collection of the human condition yeah. that will then yeah. turn into some kind of a myth, you know? Well, now I'd maybe like to um, ask uh, a question I was going to ask before the pandemic started, um, <laughs> which was, uh, um, so before, I'm assuming it was before HIV and that, um, it's your coming out story. seems like when I was very young going to bars the first time, that's the story we were all telling each other <laughs> at right. the bar, you know? Some of the, some of us ask each other, "Are you out?" <laughs> you know those kinds of right. things. Um, do you uh, want to? Can you tell us what your it was, journey was? And it, and I guess I'm I'm also looking for this hero's journey arc. And what I'm trying to get at is that I think that being the other has value. That we learn some skills along the way by starting in the known going through this unknown and then coming back to the known, we, we, we get these gifts. The hero returns with the elixir. And um, so um, with that, <laughs> um, what, what, I mean, what, what, did you I think that your coming I, out was anything like that or? I don't know if I have an elixir to return with, but I'll, I'll tell the story and then maybe you can okay. pluck the elixir out of it. Uh, so I, I guess I, like maybe most of us, I came out to uh, many times, right? Yes. Um, I'll tell one funny coming out story. So my mother has memory problems. Now she lives in a memory care facility. And for a while, she was staying with us a couple of years ago. Keep an eye. And about 15 times a day, she would ask me who Keith was. And I would say, that's my husband. And then she would say, are you gay? <laughs> come out to her again <laughs> wow and like, oh my god and you know and it was like this is the 
fucking nightmare to continually <laughs> come out to my mother day after day after day. Wow. You know, That's and then one not. time I just, I, I said, I'm sort of embarrassed to say this, but I did it. I was like, oh, Keith, he's just a friend of mine. He just lives here for a while. <laughs> and she's like, okay. And then 30 minutes later, she's like, who's that? That's oh, Keith, wow. he's my husband. Are you gay? <laughs> so oh, when, when, when did you, uh, how did she find out or did you tell her face to face? I was gay in the 70s. I um, went to a high school. First, I went to a public school for two years in high school, ninth grade and 10th grade. And then in 11th grade, I went to this, uh, my folks moved from Maui to Honolulu and I went to this boarding school, day school. And the school had a zero tolerance policy for fighting. I was gay, I was gay in 11th grade. I went to the 11th grade Halloween parade as a gay ghost. Did, how did you feel about that? Were you uh, resistant to being gay or? No, I mean, people have been telling me I was a fag since I was in, you know, second grade. I remember Kurt Norris called me a fag in second grade. And, um, and I was like, yeah, but what am I supposed to do about it? I'm trapped in a teenage <laughs> body. I'm sorry, I don't even know. So, yeah, I, you know, I was out in high school and I eventually came out to my, my father. I mean, my mother sort of knew, you know, my mother knew. My father, um, after my first year of college, whatever, I was home and he was like, you know, are you, are you homosexual? I said, yes. And he said, move out. And I was like, go back to sleep. You know, I'm not, <laughs> you know, like that was like, sort of, you know, whatever. And um, that's sort of my coming out story. And of course, in the early eighties through, you know, really, I don't know, whenever, the early 90s, I mean, coming out was still a thing. People would never imagine that, you know, I would always sort of remark like, how do people, how can people possibly be surprised when I come out? You know, <laughs> but they, they were, they were, you know, uh, some of them, some of them were not, of course, but, you know, and I, I don't know what it's like to, to come out in 2020 or a 20-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 14-year-old. I don't know mm -hmm. what, that's, what that's like. I do have very specific memories of the sort of, sort of, not loneliness, but the idea that there weren't other people like me around. Yeah, mm -hmm. that sounds you know. painful. Yeah, and not because, you know, I sort of was in that category of anyway. Like, I yeah. didn't mind being singular, you know. Did you, I mean, even, did you maybe even like it? I mean, yeah. it would give you yeah. a brand. <laughs> yeah, right. And I had friends, you know, women and men who were gay, still are. Okay. In high school. You know, in Hawaii, it was kind of different at that time because there was, there was a, it wasn't the same sort of um, conservative religious element that is now there in the yeah. 70s. There was a big sort of return to Hawaiian culture and there was a sort of hippie live and let live environment everywhere. And there wasn't, um, it's, it's, you know, it's different now. Mm -hmm. So when, uh, why did you decide to move to West Hollywood? Well, I moved to California to go to college 
And okay. then um, when I, I went to CalArts for two and a half years, and then by the end of 1983, I had sort of moved to the to West Hollywood and the West Hollywood area, uh, just because that's where my friends who had uh, gone to USC or California Lutheran College of all places and other uh, UCLA, they sort of, you know, the ones that were gay, they were like, this is where you come, the West Hollywood. So I moved here, yeah. even then, even then, homosexual yeah. ice cream. I remember there was a Haagen-Dazs <laughs> ice cream store that I used to go to, you know, at like, because I, I was never much of a drinker, but, you know, mm. but I still wanted to hang out. So is there an elixir that I returned? Yeah, well, I was just like, is there, <laughs> there's, there's a book out, um, uh, being gay in the new way forward and in this he thinks that the uh, gay men have 14 specific traits like we're we tend to be more cooperative compassionate empathetic um we are uh sexual educators um we give permission to to uh look at your sexuality and 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 do your sexuality differently those kinds of things so I'm really just trying to like do my own, like ask people if they identify with any of that kind of stuff. Um, well, that's, kind of, that's kind of like a, you know, reading your horoscope, you know, good things will come to you, you know, make sure you look around the next corner. Yeah, yeah. Well, the yeah. empirical evidence that I do have is I've been doing a lot of work with the Mankind Project. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's been around since the seventies. It's a men's organization designed to create connection and, and, and emotional literacy, like getting in touch with your emotions. A lot of guys, uh, some of the, the founders came back from Vietnam and wanted to deal with their feelings. Hmm. And uh, they have a whole ritualized way of doing it. It's very cool, I, I enjoy it. Um, they're very, very cool about having gay men involved. And, uh, but what I have noticed is gay men are like statistically in the group the way they are in general society, a small sliver but the gay men tend to be able to hold space, to get a, a woo-woo term, but um, they take on leadership and they're able to cooperate more. They're in more leadership in this straight men's group. Uh, they're way disproportionately in the leadership, <laughs> I've noticed. Wow. And what's really cool is the straight guy in that organization constantly point to the things, what they call the, the, the queer gateway weekend does um, that they adopt <laughs> for the main mm -hmm. program all the time. So wow. I guess the last thing I want to ask you is I just, and you're not a health professional, you're just another, you're, you're the mayor of West Hollywood and you're a gay man. And I think that we connect a lot through, the gay men connect a lot through physically and through sex and all of that. And this is particularly difficult time um, if sex is off the menu, which some people don't seem to think it is. I've been on some of the hookup apps and I was talking more to people, which I really like. I've actually just had some like actual conversations with uh, people, uh, but people still want to hook up. What would you say from a, well, we haven't talked about this, but uh, just from an elder space, you know, you're the, you're, we're the big kahunas now. We're, we're in our fifties and um, like it or not, we're the big brothers of the group. What message do you have for our little brothers out there who might be online? Well, I think you've heard me say this before that I think people need to go invent the world they want to live in. 
And um, if I had listened to people my age when I was in my 20s, this might not be such a terrific place. Mm. And so I, I don't have words of wisdom. I do have, I can offer that uh, there are people who have ideas about how to protect yourself. And um, those are out there, just like the uh, opportunity to go hook up and ignore what's going on. And oh, what I love about what you're saying now, I don't mean to cut you off, but it's just, you're like, take responsibility for your own life and make your own decisions. <laughs> yeah, because it's going to Because it's going to add up. You know, I, I can't subtract one moment from my life, but I can add new, better ones going forward. So, you know, I get why people want to hook up. I was 24 once, right? I totally get it. I was 34, I was 44, I was 54, I'm here today. But I also, you know, there, the city provides information, the county provides information, the state provides information, the federal government provides information. I would hope those apps are providing information. Um, they are. You know, but I wouldn't, I would, not ever be the person who says that the choices somebody is making for themselves, uh, I should be making them for them. I mean, people have to live their lives and sometimes people have to make mistakes in order to realize they made a mistake. I love that. I really, really do. Um, because I think a lot of times people, and this is why it's hard. I mean, we all get to go in. I was talking about that. And I think that's where the answer, answers are. And I think it's a good time to go in because uh, with what you just said, a lot of, I was asking you to say, tell other people what to do. Be, be the them that tells the me what to do. And you're telling us to, you're telling us to get informed and make good choices. Yeah. And if you make a bad choice, don't beat yourself up. That's beautiful. It's very loving. I guess I'll wrap it up there. Um, All right. I got to get back to work anyway. So thank you so much, John, for making the time to do this. And it is good to see you. And I'm really glad to hear that you and Keith are both doing well. And um, the rest of your, your, your animal family sounds like they're doing well there too. <laughs> I cut my dog's hair and it's like, I'm so ashamed. He, he doesn't know to have shame, thank goodness. Because I think, well, Florida still considers that an essential service. <laughs> <laughs> and he, talk, he probably doesn't even care. No, how would he know, right? Yeah. He's much happier, he's cooler, he's not panting all day long. So, you know, it accomplished what it was supposed to do. Awesome. Well, love to you and to Keith, and thank you very Thanks, much. Okay, bye-bye. Talk to you soon, bye. And that, brothers and sisters, was Mayor John D'Amico. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and a peek into the world of a leader who actually contracted COVID-19 and is here to tell us the story. Until next time, love yourself and love your neighbor by sending friendly vibes from six feet away. That's how we show love now. We're all in this together, and I can't wait to see you next week for the next episode. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the show, my friend. Now stay connected by subscribing to Girly Men Podcast and sharing with your friends on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts can be found. Visit the webpage at girlymen.com, sign up for the newsletter, and find more details about each episode. 
Let's make this a conversation because I'd really like to hear from you. Join us on Facebook at Girlymen. Submit your questions, suggest topics, or just chat with your brothers. Want to add your own two cents? Use the voice memo feature on your smartphone. Ask a question or say anything. We just might play it on the podcast. Email the file to mike at girlymen.com. Until next time.